Hello and welcome to Chewing Scenery, the podcast where we ruin all your favorite movies about theater by picking apart their inaccuracies. I am Sandy Becker. And I'm Katerina Sekirko. And today we're talking about 42nd Street, which is an oldie. Mm-hmm. And you had seen it a bunch of times before. I had never seen it. Uh, no, I get the feeling I've seen the stage musical, but even that was a while ago. So I had a kind of general sense of what it was, but I was still delightfully surprised by many of the things that happened in this movie. Honestly, I found this movie absolutely bananas. Like, I was so <laughs> excited about it. I loved it so much. It's bonkers. It makes no sense. And I love it. <laughs> yeah. I was so happy the whole time. I am so glad. So we are going to just give a quick little rundown of what happens in the movie for those who are listening who have never seen it. Um, so it takes place in the Depression, and it's basically just about the production of this one play. There is a director, and his name is Julian Marsh, and he is towards the end of his career, although the actor looked like he was in his mid-40s at best. He's been warned that he's going to have a nervous breakdown if he directs another show, and so this has to be his last. Yes, so he directs the show Pretty Lady. He's hired by Jones and Barry, who are the producers of the show, and they're getting the financial backing from Abner Dillon, who's a rich businessman and lover slash implied lover of the leading lady, Dorothy Brock. Dorothy, or Dot, as we sometimes hear her called. So Abner's putting the money into the show. Dorothy's playing the leading role, and they audition for the chorus parts. And that's where we start meeting more of the characters. Right. Most importantly, Peggy, who is brand new. She's This is her first show ever. She's never been a chorus girl before. And then there's two other girls whose names I did not catch. Lorraine and Annie. Lorraine is an experienced chorus girl who is also having a relationship with Andy, who is the assistant director slash general does everything that Julian, the director, doesn't do in the show. And the other chorus girl is Annie, Anytime Annie, who has a smaller role, but who has an plot important role near the end of the movie. So the movie follows their rehearsal process for this new musical, Pretty Lady. They've got five weeks of rehearsal, and then they open out of town, and then we'll move to Broadway. So we see the rehearsal. We see that Dorothy is actually two-timing Abner with her old vaudeville partner, Pat Denning. Yes, and this is a very serious problem because if Abner finds out about it, he will pull his funding. The solution to that is that Jones and Barry, the two producers hire the mob to go threaten Denning and beat him up to keep him away from this woman, which works. Well, though, she breaks up with him, though. It doesn't actually work. Yes. This is the part that's like completely, I don't know. She breaks up with him. There is a suggestion that he's going to get together with Peggy, and that never happens. Billy Lawler, the male lead in the musical, has taken an interest in Peggy. But also, Peggy is being courted by this random chorus boy, whose name I don't think we ever get. And also, she goes on a date with Pat. Pat, who is trying to reconcile Dorothy being in this other relationship, and ends up striking up a conversation with Peggy. They really gel. They go on a date. But they don't sleep together. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, so then we get to opening night. Dot sprains her ankle in a drunken, very one-sided catfight uh, with Peggy 
It's <laughs> really like she just yells at Peggy and then she falls down and breaks her ankle. And they are sure that the show is going to have to be canceled. Abner swoops in and tries to get anytime Annie to replace Dorothy in the part because they've struck up a relationship. Like that night of him fighting with Dorothy, he struck up a relationship with Anytime Annie and presents her as a replacement for Dorothy in the show. Annie says, I shouldn't take this job, but you have someone in the chorus who you probably have never noticed, but who can carry your show. And that's Peggy Sawyer. Right. So they put Peggy in and she totally can carry the show. The end. It does very efficiently wrap up the romance storylines, but only in a couple of sentences. Dorothy, before the show, comes to see Peggy in the dressing room and has a great speech that we'll talk about later, but says, you get out there and knock him dead, kid. And also, I'm getting married to Pat tomorrow. <laughs> of course. Right. And Billy comes to her in the dressing room before the show and talks to Peggy and says, I've always had feelings for you. And they share a smooch half an hour before the show starts. So presumably they're together. And that's like as quickly as they wrap up those storylines. Yeah, pretty much. The construction of the actual film and the plot is not great, but it doesn't matter. Like, I had so much fun watching this movie. I loved it. I mean, the way the movie opens is just like a whole bunch of people over and over and saying, Jones and Barry are doing a show. Jones and Barry are doing a show. So I just wrote down, hey, are Jones and Barry doing a show? Because it goes on for, I don't know, a full minute. And it's filmed with a kaleidoscope effect. So you see this swirl of different superimposed faces all saying Jones and Barry are doing a show, which for 1933 might be sort of a interesting and advanced film choice. It must have been because they reused it so much. Like it was yes. constantly being used because Busby Berkeley is sort of known for that, I think. Yes, I guess I should, just before we get in, give the credits of who was involved in oh, making yeah. this movie. So it came out in 1933. Lloyd Bacon was the director and Busby Berkeley was the choreographer with a script by Ryan James and James Seymour and music by Harry Warren and Al Durbin. But Busby Berkeley, definitely to a modern viewer, is the most famous name of that lot. I think the kaleidoscope thing is very, very Busby Berkeley and the there is absolutely a sequence where you're above and all the girls are in a circle and you can see all their legs and they're doing all kinds of leg kicky stuff and that to me is what defines Buzzley Berkeley as a director I'm sure he had other qualities but that's what I think when I think him and yes. this movie doesn't disappoint for that yeah it's definitely the most iconic element of his choreography doesn't make sense for a stage production no we'll get there <laughs> <laughs> sure so yes, they're doing a show and it's called Pretty Lady. And then we're talking about Dot's contract. And I noticed it is an equity contract. And yes. I don't know the history of when equity started, but this has to be fairly recent because as we'll see later in the film, they certainly aren't following any rules. Like, I don't know what equity does for these people at this point because they're not protected in rehearsal in any way, which is probably historically accurate. Yes. I did look up, because we'll talk about the stage manager later, right. <laughs> that stage managers joined American Actors' Equity in 1920. So presumably it had been around for some time before that. So a solid couple of decades before this movie is filmed and set. 
Right. And equity was created specifically so that people wouldn't be abandoned on tour when companies ran out of money. Mm. And so uh, the actors, I'm assuming, are protected from that in this scenario, but probably not much else. And that's probably historically, historically accurate and probably fair. It seems bananas to me in my life, but that's fine. The expectation of working conditions for working in theater has changed enormously over the past hundred years, which is a very good thing. Yeah. And this scene, I, I because Abner is, it's Dot and Abner talking about her equity contract and how she's the star of this musical. And this is where I was so confused as to what their relationship was, because at first I thought he was her agent, and then I thought he was her husband, and I was, because he's so creepy and sexually harassy, that it's just, I didn't understand what was going on. Yeah, he does say later on, you wouldn't even have a show to star in if it weren't for my money. So it's clearly a package deal that the funding for the show is dependent on Dorothy being the star and part of Dorothy being the star is that she's got this connection with Abner. And then we cut to the office of Jones and Barry and they're talking to Julian Marsh and it appears they're still hammering out the terms of his employment. Yes, he is signing his contract the day before chorus auditions start which is the day before the rehearsal starts. So signing a director's contract two days before rehearsals start seems extremely risky. Seems tight. And especially for a man who is well known to be headed for a nervous breakdown. And that's, I think, my favorite part of the film was where he gets a call from the doctor while he's in negotiations at his boss's office. The doctor calls and he answers the phone and the doctor immediately shouts, you're headed for a nervous breakdown. It's brilliant. Yes. The doctor says any additional stress might prove fatal, which is really a raising of the stakes of this musical. And it's not really ever addressed again. No. Yeah, it's a very bizarre little red herring at the beginning and nothing ever comes of it. And I also don't understand what medical condition he has. (laughs) That means that if he's stressed out, he'll just die. I mean, presumably a heart condition, but never specified. It's just one of those movie illnesses which does what the plot needs it to do in terms of raising the stakes, but doesn't actually affect the way anything works. The way he talks in that scene and going forward is full of shouts and self-aggrandizing soliloquies about Broadway and directing and how he's given everything to this and how everyone expects him to pull out another miracle and somehow he'll find a way to do it. Yeah. Marsh is a kingmaker, clearly. I mean, I'm sure back then there were directors who were like, if he was attached to a project, then the project was successful and and that was the only reason it was successful. It's just a different way of experiencing theater. I did a little bit of historical research into this because the musical is so different from what we would consider a musical today. This sort of musical comedy was later on taken over by book musicals, which is the sort of musicals that are made today, which have quite a strong plot and songs and dances that are really integrated with the plot. Whereas this is closer to a musical review. Yes. In which case his role as the director is even stranger. Because this is going to be his last musical, I'm assuming he's about 45, and he's also expecting the money from this to support him for the rest of his life, which is 
like by today's by <laughs> into with today's perspective completely insane Yeah, so the next day is auditions. And holy crap, is that stage crowded full of hopefuls for the chorus. Yeah. And it's wildly disorganized, and nobody has seemed to have to sign in, and none of them are wearing (laughs) rehearsal clothes or anything they can dance in. They're all in fur coats and fancy suits, and I love the idea of people showing up to an audition in a three-piece suit. It was amazing. Having a large cattle call to fill chorus roles, I think is something that was definitely done at that time. And a version of that is still done. Totally. But this depiction seems very bonkers. It seems completely bonkers in that nobody is asked to dance at any point. Yes. The entire criteria for chorus girls is they are, they stand in a line, they lift up their dresses so that you can see their legs. And that's how they're chosen. Which I can't believe. Like, I can't believe that. (laughs) I believe that that's a huge factor in choosing, say, the Rockettes. But they have to also be able to dance. And you have to actually see that before you cast somebody. They mentioned that there have been three rounds of elimination. Oh, do they? I missed that. Okay. They say it literally in one sentence. In one sentence, we hear that there have been three rounds of cuts. But we never see any of those rounds, so we don't get to see people dance, which is weird because if the whole idea is that Peggy is a great dancer, which is something that the whole rest of the movie hinges on, seeing her audition would be a big part of that. And yet the only part of the audition that they show us is the girls lifting their skirts so that they can look at their legs. Right. Very strange choice. I was also really preoccupied with like, like, how are they keeping track of these girls? Like, there's no, they're not where they don't have numbers on. There's no, there's absolutely no way that they're keeping track of, because there's hundreds of them. And they're just like, they're like, oh, okay, those three. Like, how do you remember who they are? How do you have any idea? And then we find Peggy, because now we've finished the auditions and they only have 39 girls and they need 40. And somebody has made a counting error and cut one too many girls. And Marsh is furious about this and yelling and screaming and uh, being generally abusive, which he is throughout the entirety of the movie. Yes, he seems on the verge of a nervous breakdown and they have not even started rehearsals yet. Yes, so maybe his doctor is right. Maybe he is near death from his nerves. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So then they desperately need another girl and Peggy, luckily, after she was cut from auditions, goes and takes a nap backstage, which is exactly what I would do if I was in a massive cattle call for a chorus position and got cut. The first thing I would think to do is go and take a nap in the wing. But she does. And lucky for them, because the other chorus girls go, yeah, she was good. And they cast her. Yeah. One of the things I found particularly funny in this scene is how hilariously catty all of the chorus girls auditioning are. Literally every sentence is like a put down of someone else. And yet, does anybody make fun of Anytime Annie for showing up with a monocle and a dog to an audition? (laughs) Annie shows up with a monocle, dog, and cane. (laughs) She always has a cane. I think it's just an accessory, right? Because she's a dancer. 
Totally. I think it is purely a fashion cane. She also has an English accent that she's picked up. The accent is what they make fun of. Right. One of my favorite details from that scene is that Annie drops her monocle, steps backwards, and accidentally crushes her monocle (laughs) under her heel. Yes. And then just pulls another monocle out of her pocket and puts it in her eye. (laughs) I love Annie. I've never seen a woman wear a monocle before. (laughs) This is new to me. Yes. I just found the whole thing hilarious. And she also at one point has to ask somebody to hold her dog while she shows off her legs. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She's amazing. And I presume she has the name Anytime Annie because she's easy. Like, is that the implication that she'll sleep with anybody? Yeah. Andy makes the joke, she only said no once. And that's because she didn't hear what the question was. (laughs) So that's... You know, icky, but also I love everything about Annie. I love her. She's so mean and she's so mean to the others, which is what makes her choice at the end very out of character and weird to me, but... Weird, but touching. uh, Totally, but it doesn't make any sense. There's no character arc for Annie. She's just like this horrible, horrible, mean person. Pretty much everyone other than Peggy and Billy Lawler, the male lead, speaks in this very stylized, wisecracking, always having an insult or a dig to put in. Like everyone, Julian, Andy, the producers, I guess not Abner, but that's because he's presented as kind of dumb. All the chorus girls, Dorothy, Pat, everyone has like a snappy comeback for everything. So everyone maybe seems like a little bit of a jerk. How's it turn out, Mac? About 50-50. Half are dumb and the other half are dumber. Little Lorraine has been hitting the bottle again. Yeah, the peroxide bottle. Get a load of men in the mountaineer. Must have been tough on your mother not having any children. I went back and watched this movie a second time Uh because I was like, is there a stage manager? And (laughs) there is a stage manager of this show. Okay. Because at one point, somebody asks Andy if he's the stage manager, and I took that to mean that he was. Well, I looked at the credits. They may not have been the credits for this movie. They might have been the credits for the stage adaptation of this movie. But there is a guy called Mac who carries a clipboard. (laughs) And he's the stage manager. Mac is the stage manager. Okay. But his role is so minor, and he doesn't do so many of the things that a stage manager would do. Yeah, Andy does all those things. Yes, Andy does basically everything. And there's a couple of moments where Julian will make an order, and then Andy will call it out, and then Mac will call it out. Oh, yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, so it literally took a second watch and some (laughs) online research to determine that Mac was the stage manager. Right, Because as we will see, not only does he not really act as the stage manager in rehearsals, he also doesn't really act as the stage manager in performance. Even in the 1930s, which was like a transitional time in the role of stage managers, but even by those standards, he essentially does nothing. It's a very strange choice. Is he the one who's every once in a while they cut to him and he's like whispering a note to a chorus girl? There is at least one time where he's like, Watch this. I might want you to understudy it. Okay, that's the guy. Right. How does he have the authority to decide who the understudies are unilaterally? (laughs) That's also ridiculous. Well, as we will see, the company doesn't have understudies 
maybe Mac is trying to uh, be proactive about this because he knows that there's no understudies. <laughs> maybe he's like surreptitiously trying to plant understudies because he knows that they're not thinking ahead. And certainly he wouldn't want to bring a question like that to Julian Marsh because he might drop dead. Yes. Or, you know, he could get fired instantly because uh, Julian is... Wow, is he a callous, callous man. At the end of the auditions, when he tells the group of people that rehearsals start tomorrow, he gives a speech. Oh, the speech. That I guess is supposed to be inspirational, but... (laughs) It's not. And I might include a clip of this speech because it's so funny. Yes, please. Tomorrow morning, we're going to start a show. We're going to rehearse for five weeks and we're going to open on schedule time. And I mean schedule time. You're going to work and sweat and work some more. You're going to work days and you're going to work nights. And you're going to work between time when I think you need it. You're going to dance until your feet fall off. And you're not able to stand up any longer. But five weeks from now, we're going to have a show. I guess that was the thing that openings got postponed a lot in the 30s or something. I mean, I think it was more common when they were developing new shows for Broadway. Sure. Nowadays, if you're working at a regional theater, the time is scheduled. Like, the show is going to open on opening night no matter what. Yeah. But if it's a new show that isn't part of any company's season, but that is just being produced by producers partially as a money-making venture, they might actually hold opening if the show isn't ready by opening, particularly because they're opening out of town, not in New York City. Yeah, but his his speech is absolutely terrifying. So clearly there's no upper hour limit in their equity contract. And then I just clocked, we're going to meet tomorrow morning, start with lyrics, and please come in your practice clothes. And everybody went, aww. Yeah. Which I was like, <laughs> it's like, what did you expect on the first day of rehearsal? Were you expecting to come in your fur coats and your monocles and dogs? Like, yes. what did you think was going to happen? Anyway, a that very was strange reaction. Then we're in rehearsal. I still don't know what Andy's job is. He's teaching music and then he's also teaching choreography. Yes, he seems to be the assistant director and the choreographer and the musical director <laughs> and doing a good amount of the stage manager's job of communicating between the director and the company it's a wonder andy doesn't have a nervous breakdown let's be honest he's doing too much too much yeah he seems remarkably chill about having to do all of this insane amount of work seriously like andy's my favorite character he's so calm and so together and uh doing a good job from what i can tell Mm -hmm. and people seem to like him the cast seems to be comfortable with him like he seems cool. Yeah. He's maybe showing some undue favoritism to Lorraine, his girlfriend, but these things happen. Sure. And they're also rehearsing in this huge theater. Yes. That they're not opening in. And what is this theater being used for? It's the Depression. Maybe the theaters are, a lot of theaters are sitting idle at this point. Yeah. I think probably rental for the theater was a little bit cheaper. I also think there was less of an infrastructure of dedicated rehearsal spaces sure. earlier on. Like, I think it's more common than it would be now to rehearse in the theater. And while today I wouldn't have been thrilled about the idea of a ton of, like, money people and producers and, like, old men sitting out in the audience watching these rehearsals, it didn't strike me as odd for the time period. I mean, I think the producers and Abner as the financial backer have 
a stronger role than they normally would or even yes. would today because they really have their fingers in everything and their presence in rehearsal definitely seems like it could be distracting especially with abner openly gaping in astonishment at seeing so many pretty legs on stage <laughs> yeah yeah, it's gross. And they're all talking very loudly in the audience and not making any effort to be respectful of the process, which again, mm-hmm. like, probably accurate, but irritating. And I imagine, like, in this scenario, there's nobody who has the authority to kick them out except maybe Marsh. And he's not even in the room. He's out in a rehearsal hall somewhere or in the lobby rehearsing the leads. Yes, that is true to life from my experience of rehearsals for musicals. Totally. Because there's so many different elements that have to come together, and there's so many people involved that there's often multiple rehearsals running at the same time. Usually a smaller scene work rehearsal with the directors and the leads, while someone else is taking the chorus and teaching them music or teaching them dance steps. Yeah. The next thing I have is sort of at the end of the rehearsal day. At one point, they're doing a big number and they pan out. And this is the first time you see the word asbestos written on the proscenium. Oh, I didn't notice that. (laughs) Yeah, it comes up twice. Yeah, they pan out and across the top of the proscenium says asbestos. But this is the part that I'm like, so asbestos has a fairly prominent role in advertising in this production. There's a lot of asbestos (laughs) topography around. It just says asbestos everywhere. And... While I have no doubt that Asbestos would be willing to pay for this show because it's a new exciting product that has so many uses in the 30s and people were really excited about it, I don't understand why they're so worried about Abner's money if they're in Big Asbestos's pocket. Like, I, I assume that Big Asbestos has put a lot of money into this if they have their name written on the proscenium. Yeah, I find that very confusing because it's never <laughs> mentioned nope. in the actual movie, but we do see the text asbestos several times yes i suspect asbestos funded the film if we're you know being (laughs) honest (laughs) but i find it hilarious thank you for catching that i totally missed it (laughs) hey this is the shit i notice the other nice true-to-life touch of watching rehearsals in the theater is that there's a plank put over the orchestra pit so that julian can sit closer to the stage and can travel from the house into the stage which is something that exists most theaters that have a orchestra pit that's open like that. Good catch. See, that's the important stuff you notice. <laughs> important, but not as funny as Asbestos's <laughs> funding of this movie. Um, yeah, and then at the end of our rehearsal sequence, Julian comes in to see a musical number that has been rehearsing and cuts it unilaterally, decides that it's terrible and it's cut. And I wrote, good, it was a garbage musical number. Like, I was glad it was cut from the show. And my philosophy is there's never any such thing as a bad cut. So, great. Make it shorter, make it better. This musical number, It Must Be June, is one of the most lackluster (laughs) numbers I've seen in a musical. Which I think it's supposed to be deliberately. Like, it's supposed to be old-fashioned and not exciting, and so his cut seems reasonable. Yeah, he cuts it very angrily, though. Again, not necessary. Like, we're still a few weeks out, I assume, at this point, in our five-week rehearsal process. Yeah. I think five weeks seems like a reasonable, true-to-life length of time for a rehearsal. Absolutely. Especially a new musical on Broadway. I would have expected a little longer, in fact. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would have hoped for a little longer. But yeah, five weeks is totally... Sounds normal. Yeah. Nowadays, three weeks is pretty much standard for most plays. But I think for a new musical being put on by a commercial company, yep, even now five weeks would be about it. Totally. Yeah, but anyway, so Marsh has a giant temper tantrum over cutting this. He, as a character, 
is clearly over the top and out of control and ridiculous. But again, for the time period and for the style of theater and for the fact that it's commercial production, for somebody to be this much of a tyrant doesn't ring false to me. Yes. I mean, it's sort of played for comedy how ridiculous he is, and that's fair. But yeah, (laughs) I've heard stories about people who are just about that bad. And I think... I think 42nd Street was the origin or was a popularization of a lot of elements that were used over and over again in other backstage musicals. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of tyrannical director, but who really does have a vision and is able to like pull the inexperienced newcomer to do something that she never thought she could. That's something that comes up again and again in movies about theater. Yes. So this was like the origination of the trope. I sort of glossed over the in-between stuff because it doesn't really matter that the mob is involved. It doesn't really matter that What's-His-Face gets beat up. Yeah, (laughs) we just see a little bit of Dorothy and Pat's relationship. Then we see that the producers go to Julian to talk about how that is endangering the show because it's endangering Abner's investment in the show. And the one part I really liked about that scene not the involvement of the mob, because that doesn't really make any sense. But the part I did like was that Julian is working on the show outside of rehearsal hours by using a maquette, which is a two-scale model of the stage, but in miniature, with little figures that he's moving around to plan what happens during the show. And that is like a real true-to-life thing that directors do, especially directors of musicals or operas or any like really big shows I find will do that a lot so I loved seeing that moment we go back to another dance rehearsal and there's so much screaming he's screaming at these people so much and saying that they're such terrible dancers and my thought was that perhaps if you had auditioned the dancers instead of just inspecting their legs maybe you'd have better dancers in one way it is true to life because If you are trying to communicate with dancers over the rehearsal pianist and over 40 people tap dancing, you are definitely going to be screaming. Mm. But that's why a wise director waits to stop things before giving notes. Yeah. Rather than just screaming, dance faster over everything that's happening on stage. Like, that's not really an effective strategy. Yeah. And dance faster is also not a good note. Yes. There, I think, are multiple scenes where he just screams faster, presumably both at Jerry, the rehearsal pianist, and the dancer. And that's not something you can do to a rehearsal pianist while they're playing a number. Like, you really have to stop and tell them about wanting to change the tempo. You don't just shout it out in the middle of a number. Yeah. That's not effective. Yeah. In this dance rehearsal, we cut back to Abner and the two producers in the house. And Abner, who was once so excited to see all these women's bare legs, now is looking completely bored after clearly hours of watching a tap dance rehearsal. And he says, after three weeks of this, a leg ain't nothing to me but something to stand on. (laughs) And I laughed. That's fair. Also gross. Abner's just gross in general. He's really gross. And while we're talking about him, I want to share another favorite quote, which is, he looks like a Bulgarian boil weevil mourning his firstborn. (laughs) So for all of you who haven't seen the movie, 
Just try to imagine Abner looking like that. I thought, I think Abner looks like Alfred Hitchcock. That's that was my oh, he first. does a little. Yeah, but Warren, what a ridiculous <laughs> thing to say about somebody. I know, but I do kind of enjoy that they show the boredom of watching a dance rehearsal because dance rehearsals can be really boring to sit through. Yes, even if you're there for a professional reason, as both of us have been as stage managers, it can be very boring to watch a dance rehearsal because so much of it is repeating small sections and polishing small sections, and that just takes time. Yes, but when you're stage managing a musical town, sometimes uh, it's a welcome break. Sometimes you're like, oh, thank God, they're just singing for an hour and I don't have to write anything down. This rehearsal is also a little bit weirdly disjointed. They're like, okay, we're going to dance this number. Okay, she's going to sing her solo. Okay, now we're going to dance this other number. Like, it's really, it doesn't seem to have any sort of a schedule to it. It's very strange because in the first segment of rehearsal, they cut between different things being rehearsed in a way that makes it clear that this is a montage of different moments from rehearsal being put together, which is like a normal way of doing it. Right. But in this case, because they include more of the connective tissue... It feels very weird. Yeah. Like, Dorothy sings a solo, You're Getting to Be a Habit with Me, which we'll later see on in the show, but she sings it with the piano, and she tells the pianist to put it up half a step, which is a real thing that happens. But it's a big ask in the moment. <laughs> yes. The fact that he's able to do that instantly does not seem realistic. It is more of a thing where he would say, that's going to take a day for me to rewrite the chart so maybe we should do this tomorrow and then there would be like some discussion with the director musical director and singer about how to approach that yeah but in this case he just like is able to go up half a step jerry's a musical genius which uh whatever maybe jerry's a musical genius that's fine maybe jerry's a musical genius i also wrote people sit and lie on pianos in movies a lot more than they do in real life that is true because she perches up on the piano for that and... Very yeah. rarely is that permitted in a rehearsal. But yes. she wears giant epaulets with tassels and she can get away with whatever she wants, I guess. Yes. But after the song, weirdly, Julian just gets up, says nothing to her, like no notes, and then just goes on to start rehearsing with the chorus on stage. Yeah. So the fact that they included that sort of connecting thing between different elements being rehearsed really points out how kind of nonsensical it is. Whereas if they had just cut from different things, we would assume these are different moments happening over a period of time. <laughs> yeah. But as it reads, it reads like the most bonkers rehearsal ever with yes. no feedback for anybody. And then we just let's do this and let's do that and let's do this and let's not explore anything or try anything new. Or It's very strange. At this point, uh, I also wrote a note appreciating the period dance slash exercise clothes totally. that the chorus is wearing. Totally. They look like old-timey bathing suits. I love them. I don't know to what degree they were what people would actually wear and to what degree they were a costume design choice, but they are delightful to look at. Peggy has a particularly funny number that has enormous puffed sleeves and like some sort of little fake bow ribbon at the neckline which is very funny they're dancing another number and i guess out of pure exhaustion from having been worked day and night and all the times in between peggy passes out the director this is my one of my favorite quotes of the film get her out of here this is a rehearsal not a rescue and she is 
picked up and unceremoniously taken out of the rehearsal hall while the dancing continues. Like, there's not even, nobody even stops or worries about her. It's like, this musical is a death mark. Like, just leave the dead behind and keep going. I've never seen a rehearsal move on so fast from someone being injured. I know, she's unconscious and they don't care. Nobody cares. (laughs) They take her out, they give her a sip of water and declare her okay. She just sort of takes the rest of the day off. And again, nobody checks in with her. Like, I thought she was fired. That was sort of my impression with how callous these people are. I thought, oh, you pass out, you're out of the show. I guess she takes the rest of the day off and then she's back in the show. Like, there's no consequences or anything. Yeah, this is the moment where, because she's outside the theater and Pat, Dorothy's piece on the side, is also outside the theater, that they strike up a conversation and he convinces her to go out on a date. Right. So we won't go too much into the relationship side of things, but Peggy stays over but doesn't sleep with Pat. Although before that, uh, when they dismiss rehearsal, the cast is dismissed, three people shout it out, the director shouts it, and then Andy shouts it, and then presumably the stage manager shouts it, and... The second that they say rehearsal is dismissed, the main drape drops to the stage so quickly (laughs) that I was really concerned for people's safety. (laughs) Like, that's not something that happens. I don't know who is back there dropping the drape, but somebody was like, oh, rehearsal's over. Let's bring in the drape with little to no regard about whether or not there's anybody standing directly underneath it that you could maim. Well, and if they've been rehearsing as long hours as... Julian's attitude and the cuts to a quickly spinning clock, which we see. <laughs> They've actually yeah. been rehearsing that long. Clearly the crew is as eager to leave as the cast is. Absolutely. But yeah, not yeah. safe. Not safe. So I realize we haven't talked much about Peggy's performance. Because the movie also doesn't talk much about Peggy's performance. Like, so much more of the movie is spent on her relationships and on the way the show is going in general, but not really highlighting her. And anytime they do single her out, it appears to be because she's struggling with the dance. Like, they have moments where, like, I'll show you how to do the thing. And, like, some of the guys that are interested in her pull her aside and teach her stuff. Yes. Which doesn't really lend itself to the narrative that she's the best person to take over when things happen. Yeah. And she does say to that guy who takes her aside, I can tap like anything, but this combination, like implying that she's a good tap dancer, but she's like slow to learn this particular combo, I guess. But that's like a pretty weak depiction. The only thing, and I wrote this down on the second watch because knowing where it goes, I I was thinking about how weird it was that her dance abilities aren't really highlighted, but she is paired with Billy the lead as they're rehearsing one of the numbers, which is usually something where if the lead is paired with a chorus dancer, they would pick a better chorus dancer to be with him. Although the whole point of the scene seems to be that Billy, even though he's the male lead, is not that strong a dancer, which Julian is sure to tell him about in that moment. (laughs) Indeed. The ever kind and supportive director that he is. So now it's the day before opening. Or it's... Yes, it is the day before opening. I figured out the timeline. It took me a few tries. (laughs) Oh, good. I never figured out the timeline. I just let it wash over me because the timeline of finishing rehearsals in New York, rehearsing in Philadelphia, 
and then training Peggy into the lead role and then opening is not entirely clear to me, so I'm glad that you tracked that. I am sure that this is this is the only way it could have happened. So there is a very brief mention of an all-night rehearsal, which is insane, but here, here we are. They have been rehearsing all night. It is now the morning of the day before opening. Okay. And all of the numbers are ragged and Marsh is really upset. Yes. He then announces that they thought they were going to open in Atlantic City, but they're actually opening in Philadelphia. They're finding this out the day before opening. (laughs) (laughs) Which is hilarious. One, because to be on a show and not know what city it's opening in (laughs) is ludicrous. Yes. And two... Because it, it really shows how much people's perspectives on cities have changed since this movie was made, that Atlantic City is the desirable choice, right. and everyone <laughs> hates Philadelphia. <laughs> everyone hates Philadelphia. Philadelphia yeah. PU was one of the lines <laughs> that one of the chorus girls said. Indeed. Um, yeah, so they find out they're going to Philadelphia. The train leaves New York at one o'clock for Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. The dress rehearsal in Philadelphia is at 4 p.m. that day. Okay. <laughs> that, to me, not possible. Well, that's why I'm like, is there an extra day in the middle? Because the normal way to do it, <laughs> although we know nothing about the scheduling of this show is normal, but you would finish rehearsals in New York, have a day of travel, which depending on how long it is, might have a rehearsal at the end of that day. And then you'd have a day of rehearsal, and then you'd open. Yeah. I know that the dress has to happen the day before opening because there's a whole drunken party between dress and opening. But they do say we open tomorrow in this conversation. Oh! Oh, okay, I get it. It's because the (laughs) rehearsal has been so long that it finishes in the morning. Yes. So they all go home and sleep for a little bit, get on the train, rehearse that night, and then the next calendar day is the opening. Yes, that's correct. Wow. Yeah, this is completely insane and not possible and not fair to the actors. But the part that really bothers me is that when they get to Philadelphia, they see them unloading crates as though they haven't even started setting up the set in Philadelphia yet. And so they're they're meant to have set up between like one and four in the afternoon and when we see the show and we see the set (laughs) there is no way (laughs) they did not have at least a week if not much much more to set up this insanely elaborate set it really makes no sense because i don't believe we see them rehearsing on the set in new york no so the normal way to do this is that you rehearse while you're rehearsing the set is being built and then you arrive to the set being on stage. Yes. But here they're clearly still building it. And we see Mac, the stage manager, trying to kind of hurry people along in a very brief scene from my, again, online research. That really would be part of the stage manager's job at that time. They sort of were serving the function of a technical director. That makes sense. I mean, you and I did a touring show that wasn't really meant to be a touring show. Oh, yeah. And they were there long before we arrived setting up the complicated set. Yes. Our set, while complicated, had nothing on the set that we're about to see on this impossible set. Totally. Which was really a feature of musical comedies at that time. Like, they had come out of 
and carried on this tradition of extremely elaborate and jaw-dropping sets, which were kind of a bigger focus than having a plot which hung together. They're rehearsing on stage and people are talking backstage and the yell for them to quiet down is so much louder than the talking and that made me laugh really hard. Also, is Gandhi in this show? What the hell was that about? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the number we watch is You're Getting to Be a Habit with Me, the song that we've heard Dorothy rehearsing with the piano earlier, but now we get to see her singing and dancing with some of the chorus boys and the orchestra. And then at the end, this man with glasses and like a white fabric draped over it's him. It's Gandhi. Comes on. <laughs> it's, it's totally Gandhi. Why is he in the show? Was Gandhi prominent at this point in history? I have no idea. <laughs> but that's what I saw. Okay, I'm actually going to take a pause and yep. look it up. Yes, so it could be Gandhi. (laughs) So I've looked up. (laughs) Yeah, so at the end of the musical, this guy who, to my eyes and your eyes, definitely looks like Gandhi, comes on after all these other gentlemen in the dance have been in tuxedos. And I don't understand. I think maybe they understood at the time. Maybe there's something going on. But Gandhi was in the show, and I don't know why. And yes, I hope that nobody knows why. I hope that it's just something they threw in <laughs> and it's completely unexplained. And they were just like, ha, a reference that we know. <laughs> so we see this number and then we see a little tiny bit of the finale and we see the curtain come down. And as soon as the curtain comes down, everyone instantly flops down and starts chatting with each other. And that is definitely true to life. Yes. Yes, although the immediate note session, not true to life, because usually you have some time to get out of costume, but the director comes over and immediately gives them their (laughs) quote-unquote pep talk. Yes. He's not feeling great about the state of this show. I wrote down the quote, and he says, well, it's not good, but it's not bad. That's all for tonight. (laughs) Thanks, director. But even after he says, that's all for tonight... He also calls them back for more, and then it seems like it's also going to end, and then he calls them back a third time (laughs) to say, like, have some fun tonight, try to relax, and, like, tomorrow come back and do the best damn show you've ever done in your life. And he's just so inspirational. All of his speeches are excellent. And then he insists that Andy come home with him. Yes. Because he's sad, (laughs) which is a very weird turn of events and not Andy's job. So Andy is in the midst of leaving with Lorraine and sees that Julian is still in the theater. Julian talks a little bit about the show and then is just like, I'm feeling down. Do you want to like come back with me? And Andy says yes and stands up Lorraine to come back and keep Julian company. Oh, poor Julian. Poor Andy. Poor Andy. Yeah. Andy, Andy gets stuck babysitting a lot of people that he shouldn't have to babysit and there and the yes. play's not that bad like i don't really understand why julian is so dejected <sighs> and then everyone gets super wasted the night before opening in a display of super great professionalism yeah there's a couple of earlier scenes where people are drunk and it's played for comedy and i think that's like a comedic trope of the time right. that people have really moved away from because it just doesn't seem that funny 
And it doesn't seem that professional, although definitely it is a thing that hopefully people aren't getting fall down drunk in between dress rehearsal and opening, but the majority of people, I think, after a rough dress rehearsal would want a stiff drink sure. to relax. Yeah. The difference is that the money is at this party. Yeah, there's multiple different parties happening at the same time. They're all in the same hotel. Abner, Dorothy, the writer, the producers, and some random rich people who are all very drunk are at a party in one of the hotel rooms. And people start sniping at each other. People start sniping at Dorothy. And Dorothy loses it and tells Abner off. And I believe slaps his face. Yep. And stalks off. And, well, she kicks everybody out of her party. Like, it's in her room, so she kicks everyone out, and then she calls Pat over because she's upset. And this is how they find out that Pat and Dorothy are getting it on. Yes. Meanwhile, while this party's happening, another party is happening. The hotel room is stuffed with chorus people drinking, playing practical jokes on each other, and making out. Sexually assaulting each other. Well, yes. Peggy has to fight off a particularly handsy person and she also slaps his face there's a ton of face slapping abner also gets slapped by another woman <laughs> at the party and he slaps that woman's ass earlier anyway there's so much more slapping in this movie than there is in real life but i guess that's true of all movies so peggy stalks out of that party and both peggy and the producers are in the hallway to see pat denning go into dorothy's room yes but I think Abner doesn't know this. He just, because he's mad that he got slapped and kicked out of the party, he storms up to Julian's room and demands that Dorothy be fired the day before opening. And Julian, like, he refuses and he throws a temper tantrum, as he always does. But out of character, he's not just thinking of himself and his own career. He says, there are 200 people employed in this production. Chorus girls, boys, electricians. That's the extent of his list. But <laughs> he seems to care about the staff. I mean, it's a funny thing in this movie because we don't get to see why Julian is such a good director. Right. When he talks about his own directing in the early scene where he's signing his contract, it's that he drives people so hard that they have good performances. Yes. He's a break you down to build you up kind of a director. Yeah. Which is a certain model, which thankfully is falling out of favor. But we don't get to see him actually being a good director in rehearsal. Like, we get to see him yelling and complaining about things, yeah. but not actually doing the work that I think is the interesting part of a director's work. Kind of seeing where things are at, understanding the situation, understanding what you want, and finding the way to get people where you want them to be. Like, I think that's really the essence of a director's work. It's harder to portray and less dramatic than just yelling at people. But I think in this scene, we actually sort of see what makes him a good director because he's able to talk Abner down from his fury. Yeah, he does some grade A pandering. I'm really impressed with him pandering to the yeah. money. Like, it was impressive. But still, at the end of the scene, Dot must apologize tonight. Yeah, that's the sad thing, is that after this beautiful speech by Julian that both is like, Abner, be practical don't waste $70,000 on account of any dame you've already invested the money to think about all the people. It's not just her. It's 200 people whose jobs depend on this. 
to my favorite quote, back in New York, they're calling you the angel of Broadway, which I loved. <laughs> I thought that was so funny and so kind of true to the way a certain kind of investor in theater wants to see themselves. And Marsh says, of course, Dorothy didn't mean it and she'll apologize. And so Abner agrees and is like, okay, if she apologizes... But then on the doorstep, he says, but it has to be tonight. And so then Julia has to go to Dot's place. And this is when Peggy shows up as well. They're all in there. Dot is wasted. It's like super duper wasted. She starts screaming at Peggy because of Pat Denning's jealousy issues. She sort of has a one-sided cat fight all by herself. But Peggy doesn't participate in it at all. She falls down. She breaks her ankle. <laughs> so all of this is moot. Dorothy can't do the show anyway. Her ankle is fully broken. Julian's quote here is, a broken ankle, it's too bad it wasn't her neck. Really sympathetic there, buddy. It's definitely Julian comes to the room to solve one problem, which is getting her to apologize to Abner and is faced with a much worse problem. <laughs> Cut to the theater where he's announcing that the show is canceled, but everyone is to stay in the theater anyway, which is strange. It's very strange. I mean, having dealt with various different crises at the theater... Although, obviously, I'm not as hot-tempered as Julian, and maybe that's why the role of the stage manager has expanded a bit since 1933. But you definitely don't want to make an announcement like the show is cancelled until you are really, really sure the show is cancelled. Yeah. So that initial speech should have been, this has happened, we're working on what we're going to do about it, so we ask for your patience to stay at the theatre until we know what the plan is going forward. Yes. <laughs> this reads, the show is cancelled and now you're all my hostages. <laughs> like, it's really strange. <laughs> but then Abner comes in thinking that he saved the day, and I'm confused about this plot point. He brings Anytime Annie back with him to the theatre. Yes. Wasn't she in the show? Isn't she a chorus girl? Yes. Why is she not at the theatre already? Oh, yeah. I didn't even think <laughs> Why about is that. he bringing her? Like, it feels like he's found her and brought her in from New York. Did she quit the show? Is that something we missed? Like, I don't, I'm confused by all of it. I think it's just that, presumably after Abner was told off by Dorothy, that he found any time Annie oh. took comfort in her company so that when he got the word in the morning that they needed a replacement for Dorothy or the show was going to be cancelled... That he and Annie talked about it over breakfast, as she says, and he takes her to the theater. Okay. But yeah, presumably she's just late for her call? I guess. Oh, well. And she is like the most, suddenly the most gracious and magnanimous human in the whole world and goes, I can't do it. You should give it to Peg. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know why she agreed to do it for Abner and then gets to the theater and changes her mind, but she changes her mind. Yes. And Peg gets it with another glorious glorious quote from Julian, which is, I'll either have a live leading lady or a dead chorus girl. <laughs> wow. I love that quote so much. Yeah, yeah. She's either gonna be ready for the show or she's or die trying. They have five hours till opening. They establish it's five hours. So the director brings her to the dressing room and rehearses her alone in the dressing room, even though the entire cast is in the theater still. He does not make use of these people. <laughs> To help rehearse in this woman, he just rehearses alone in the dressing room, just feeds her line readings, line reading after line reading after line reading. Okay, so we've established she's a wonderful dancer. 
an okay singer. She's clearly a terrible actress because she cannot achieve excitement to see somebody she's fond of. (laughs) To help her achieve this, he grabs her, kisses her full on the mouth, (laughs) just wild sexual assault in the dressing room. And she then immediately gets to where he wants her to go. Because that's the kind of director he is. He says, have you ever been in love? And she kind of bashfully shakes her head. And then he says, have you ever had a man take you in his arms and kiss you? And she shakes her head or says no. And then he just kisses her. Like, grabs her and kisses her on the mouth. And it's violent and very startling. And I believe I screamed when it happened. Yeah. Yeah. Not okay. Not appropriate directing. He also, he is one of the, somebody who will be listening to this podcast his least favorite thing about directors and films is when they shake the person by the arms and go, feel, feel, <laughs> he does one of those. Nothing makes a good director more than shaking your actors and screaming at them to feel more. <laughs> uh, then Peggy has the, the shortest meltdown in the history of meltdowns. She like, yeah. she, she gets something wrong in the song and she collapses to the chair and goes, I can't do it. And the director goes, you can. And she goes, okay. And then it's over. <laughs> I admire how efficient this movie is. But it makes it very funny yeah, because totally. things happen and are resolved very quickly so that you can get on to the next thing, which makes for like a fast moving and exciting movie, Yeah, but often doesn't make any sense. So then Julian ends rehearsal an hour prior to show. He tells Peggy to take a nap, but that the costume people are coming in to help her with her dress. So I don't know how she's going to have time for that. But then he goes out to announce that the show is going on. An hour before the show, they after all this rehearsal, this is he's decided that it's okay for the show to happen. And what has front of house been doing this whole time? <laughs> and after the cast of the show has been waiting in the theater for four hours, the cast has been waiting for four hours, assuming the show is not happening, because when Julian comes out one hour before the showtime, he says, Peggy's doing the show, the show's on, and everyone cheers. Yeah. It's an hour before the show. People are are probably arriving. And the front of house staff has not been informed of any of this, as far as we know. So if anybody deserves to have a nervous breakdown and die spontaneously, it's the front of house manager. (laughs) Let's pour one out for the front of house manager, because I feel like they've had a rough day. Those four hours that all of the cast was there waiting in the theater could have been time that the cast was rehearsing with Peggy. Right. In the case of a... I was going to say understudy, but in this case, she's not even an understudy because an understudy is contracted to prepare a lead role, usually in addition to their own role, which is usually a smaller role. And they like watch all the rehearsals and they learn the dances. And an important part of that is that they have some rehearsal time on stage with the other actors. Yeah. Which in this situation would have been completely possible. Like the ideal would be that Julian has some time working with her alone, but that a large part of that four-hour rehearsal time is spent with the other cast members on stage. But But Julian, Julian is the greatest director of all time. By that we mean his technique is to sexually assault people and blow smoke in their face for four hours. That's a much better way to rehearse, I think. Yeah, well, based on her performance, clearly it worked. It worked! (laughs) So, but maybe it was one of the millions of pep talks that we'll get to. (laughs) So now Peggy has an hour to prepare and rest, and so 
that hour is spent by her being constantly harassed by people walking into her dressing room and bothering her while she's trying to prepare. First, Billy comes in to make out with her for a bit. Then Dot shows up to give her the kindest pep talk. She's so generous. Like, this is startling to me and lovely. Yeah, to me, this is one of the few real, if heightened, and actually touching scenes of the movie. Because Dorothy says, I was going to come to the theater and I was feeling like tearing your hair out, but I had my chance. You're going to be great and good luck. And says one of my favorite quotes, which is so, so true. The customers out there want to like you, Mm, which is true. And which every understudy going on stage or any person going on stage should remember is that there's so much built in goodwill that the audience really wants to see you succeed. Yes, and I've heard this being told to actors more times than I can count. People say this all the time. Yeah. So that's lovely. And then Places is called After the Overture Starts. I'm sensing a theme here. (laughs) They start overture. (laughs) How long is the overture? Maybe the overture is long enough that they have time. It's true. I didn't clock that this time. But yeah, it's possible. Maybe it's a like seven minute overture, in which case Places would be After the Overture. (laughs) When they call places, and Andy, again, is running around knocking on doors and yelling places. And when they call places, everybody sprints. Like, everybody is running to get to their places. So I feel like they should have been given more time. They haven't even finished hemming Peggy's dress. That's the part that really concerns me. (laughs) They're still in the dressing room with pins in her dress. And the orbiter has begun. This is terrifying. We see uh, there is an absurdly steep, tiny staircase from the dressing rooms on an upper floor to the stage floor. Yep. Which I think is definitely a feature of older theaters, like more modern theaters are often built with a lot more space for everything to be on one level. But that sort of vintage early 20th century theaters that were built downtown are often tall so that the dressing rooms aren't on the same level as the stage. Um, I noticed the director is doing all the calling of lights and curtain and things like that, which is weird because they have a stage manager. But again, maybe that was something that happened in the 30s. So I found it so weird that I did do a little bit of research. It's hard to find good sources on this. It's just not as studied as some other aspects of theater historically. But in the 30s and before the 30s, the stage manager would definitely be backstage. They would be following a prompt book, partially so that they could prompt people on stage, partially so that they could operate sound effects. And I believe at this time, because there would be electricians operating lighting cues, that the stage manager would indeed be cueing the lighting technicians. Right. Little strange that Julian is back there telling yes. them when lighting changes are happening. Although I loved the cool old-timey lighting system with the big levers. Yes. That was super. I nerded out about that. I thought that was so cool. I've never seen one of those in real life, but I love it but they had these huge levers that they were pulling to change the lights. I thought that was so awesome. Yeah, and that is for real. Um, Old-fashioned dimmers used to be super big and bulky and would be backstage and would have a combination of smaller switches and larger levers that would flip between different colors of lights that were usually permanently installed. So you'd have like a bank of lights some footlights, some in the air that would have different colored lights and which would be controlled by different switches and dimmers. Yes, and while I've never seen one, I do know people who have operated them. Wow. They're not so... They're, they are so old, but they're not so old that there aren't still some kicking around places. Yeah, it was a slow transition over the 20th century to move from those kind of dimmers to 
a style of dimmers and control of dimmers that are more what we use today. Now it's such a standard part of theater construction that there's a booth at the back of the theater. But in early theaters, there wouldn't necessarily be a booth because there no. would be no one to be there. The electricians would be backstage. The stage manager would be backstage. And you wouldn't need to be out in the house mixing mics because there were no mics. Exactly. Interesting theater history. Then, <laughs> this is the speech I want. I would like clipped if possible. Okay. <laughs> this pep talk. Oh, the show has already begun. It's too late for these <laughs> conversations to be happening. Sawyer, you listen to me. And you listen hard. 200 people. 200 jobs. $200,000. Five weeks of grind and blood and sweat depend upon you. It's the lives of all these people who've worked with you. You've got to go on. You've got to give. And give and give. They've got to like you. got to. Do you understand? You can't fall down. You can't because... Your future's in it, my future, and everything all of us have is staked on you. All right, now I'm through. But you keep your feet on the ground and your head on those shoulders of yours and go out and saw you. You're going out a youngster, but you've got to come back a star. There is so much pressure in this speech. It's upsetting to me. This poor girl. Yeah. That's not, that's not an appropriate way to help somebody with their nerves. <laughs> I, I mean, think. He does hug her. <laughs> that doesn't help. But after his inappropriate kiss, that doesn't seem as like warm and comforting as it normally would. Nothing about this is helpful. And she goes on stage and she does a lovely job. And then we see this cool little, this train sequence. Oh, yes. Is so cute. Like, I was like, I would not be disappointed if I was in the audience and this was the number I saw. I would not have been disappointed at all. I loved it. I thought it was adorable. So the beginning of this train sequence, you're looking at the back of a train car, like the little sort of balcony that's in the back of old-fashioned train cars. And then midway through the song, it splits open and rotates out so that you can see in cutaway all of the inside of the train car. And I actually laughed out loud with delight when I saw it. I know! It was truly delightful. I really, and believable as a set piece. Like I totally, I was like, I can see that happening. I know how they did that. I was really excited about it. And I thought it was excellent. They had one girl who they decided should be singing all of her lines through a banana that she was eating that I thought was an interesting choice. So the song we should say is Shuffle Off to Buffalo, which is why they're on the train. Right. It's like mostly a duet between Peggy and this guy who I don't think is Billy. Which is I can't a bit tell. confusing. They it's all hard look to tell. Yeah, black and white movies and old and like all white guys. It's just it's impossible to tell. Who they I are. have the same problem, especially when they change his hair. I'm like, is that Billy? But it's mostly a duet with them. But then the rest of the chorus shows up as other train passengers, and two of the chorus girls are eating an apple and a banana in between <laughs> their lines. Yeah, but you never see the girl take the bite of the apple. Like, I feel mm. like that one girl's not actually eating her apple, but the other girl is hondo pee, like, <laughs> shoving a banana into her face. And she is, I'm impressed with her ability, the speed at which she manages to cheat that banana so that she can sing through it. I'm impressed. Yes. It seems stressful and weird, and I wouldn't want to do it. Yes. There's a reason why singers don't really want to be eating food in the middle of their songs. So because we've talked about quick changes in movies before, I wanted to clock the quick change for Peggy and the male lead in this number, where they go from their wedding suit and dress to pajamas. It cuts from them predominantly singing to these two chorus girls singing in the train berth, presumably to give these actors time to change. Right. 
he has eight seconds to change. Wow. Which isn't impossible, but it would be very difficult. And I did note how baggy his pajamas were. So I'm like, hmm, I wonder if he just overdressed his pajamas over his suit, which would not be an unheard of thing. Yeah, and that's doable in eight seconds. Yeah, that's doable in eight seconds. That's probably what happens. And I love that you noticed that. I was too distracted by the banana. I didn't even really notice. Peggy's the confusing one a little bit because there's a cut to her, presumably in another room in the train, in her slip, and then away, and then back to her in her pajamas. But either way, her whole change has about two minutes, which is totally doable. Oh, that's feasible. Yeah, that's not even a quick change anymore. Yeah. But I did think about all of those chorus girls who are on in an earlier number, go off stage in the introduction to this piece. All 40 chorus girls are changing out of their previous look into these pajamas and secretly sneaking onto the train car so that when the train car opens, they're there in their pajamas. That's chaos backstage. Yeah. Especially because we haven't seen them rehearse with costumes until the dress rehearsal. Because they were on the train to Philadelphia. Like, they've had no time to practice with these costumes. Good good for them. Good for them. Yes, good for them. <laughs> so then we see a little bit of Peggy offstage. Because she gets another super high stress pep talk and intermission. She comes offstage and Julian tells her, the, the good job, but the hard part's yet to come. Totally. <laughs> like, just not helpful at all. He does say something that I love and appreciate and think is true, which is there isn't an actor on stage who doesn't know what you're going through and isn't pulling for you. Right. And that's also true. Again, helpful and kind, but she does not need the added stress of, like, it's going to get worse from here, kiddo. Like, it's just... (laughs) Poor girl. So there's several musical numbers. The whole last third of the movie essentially is watching this show. And there's a moment that drives me crazy where the kick line is entering and they are kicking the masking as they go by. (laughs) I didn't notice. (laughs) Which is such a pet peeve and should be a pet peeve for a director as perfectionistic as Julian Marsh is. But I saw that and I'm like, ugh. Also on the backstage side, Mac, the ostensible stage manager who doesn't seem to really do anything, is standing near the electricians. But as we said earlier, Andy and Julian are the ones giving any sort of cues. And they're really cueing in a extremely haphazard way. Like, all right, that's your light change. Yeah, this is where the lights change. Like, that's not useful information. (laughs) Yeah, it really doesn't make any sense. But on to the next production number, which is... I'm young and healthy. Yes, and this is where the Busby Berkeley-ness of it all happens. They have multiple revolves. There are three nested circular revolves that all raise to different heights. And there is a bench in the middle that sinks down into the revolve as well. Yeah, pretty complicated. And all of the... Chorus girls are on the outside of the revolve and you can see their legs and there are lots and lots of shots from above so that you can see them all kicking and it looks really beautiful, but would be absolutely so mind-numbingly terrible from an audience perspective if this was a live performance (laughs) because you would only ever see anyone's backs because they're all kicking in towards the center of the revolve. So it's like, why, why is this in a show? Also, where did these revolves come from? 
revolves are not the sort of thing that you can change over an intermission and just put on the stage. Completely impossible. Everything about this is impossible. So this is the first number, I think, which really starts to move away from what would actually be on stage to numbers that would be impossible to be on stage that are really designed for film and not for stage. Totally. So I can totally understand that approach to a musical on film, that some of the musical numbers are as they would be to an audience on an actual stage, and then some really take advantage of film to go beyond what's possible on stage. But weirdly, in this movie, at the end of this number, you see a shot from the audience looking over the orchestra pit onto the stage. So it really emphasizes that... Draws attention to the terrible, terrible stagecraft of this. Exactly. Like, they could have just cut from the overhead shots to the next number in a way that didn't emphasize, oh, it seems natural to us because we're watching on film, but it would look super weird to the audience (laughs) sitting in the house. I found that a very strange choice. But then it doesn't matter, because then the revolve completely disappears instantly. And is replaced by a car, uh, another another vehicle on stage. It's, there's no way that this car is on stage. And then the set is, I thought, watching this finale number, that I had written, I had like looked down to write down a note and looked back up. And I thought we had, in the world of film, transitioned so that we were actually performing outside and we'd broken all barriers and this was not no longer the play. The set is so insane and out of control in so many levels. And now we have a subway staircase leading down to a subway and grates and all kinds of multiple level buildings that we can see inside of buildings and outside of buildings. And I thought for sure we had just gone outside. I could not wrap my head around what was going on with this set. It was so, so completely bonkers. Yes. So, of course, the finale is 42nd Street. And they handle this transition in such an interesting way for the audience on film, although you really wonder what the audience in the theater would see of this, you see just Peggy going through the curtains and starting the number and doing some tapping. And then at some point the curtains open and you can see that behind her is what looks like a painted street scene. Mm -hmm. And then the camera goes out and she hops down from the top of a car and you see this enormous street scene. Yeah, it just takes every like everything that we've gone to build up this world of of being in the theater. It just completely smashes it all all to pieces. Which is fine, except that if I was directing this movie, I would have just then we've broken the fourth wall, and that's how it ends. Ah. I wouldn't have then tried to go back into the constraint of the theater after that because now my disbelief. Is fall it's not it's no longer suspended somebody has cut that cord it's come crashing to the earth it was just so weird to me at its peak i noted that there are five cars visible on stage which <laughs> seem to be full-size cars because one of them is the one that she jumped down from the roof from i believe plus a live horse yes this is the point at which i was sure we were outside there's <laughs> this is not happening on a stage and if it is happening they did not bring this to New York and set it up in three hours. Like, it's yes. not happening. I was upset by it. But then, lucky for me, I was distracted immediately from this confusion by the inexplicable attempted rape that happens in the middle of the closing number that is so confusing 
And all of a sudden, we're just in some girl's apartment where somebody is trying to drag her to the bed and is pulling at her clothes, and it's really graphic and horrifying. And then she escapes by climbing through the window and runs down to the street, all of this happening somehow on a stage in front of people. And then does somebody stab her? Somebody gets stabbed. And it's just in this happy, like, 42nd Street musical. Like, you're just like, what is going on? Is this what Julian Marsh is famous for? <laughs> I like the song 42nd Street. Like, it's a fun song. Sure. And it's very tonally strange because the song kind of talks about this is a street that, like, encompasses all of New York from the highest class areas to, like, the body dangerous neighborhoods, I guess. And that's what they're trying to show. But, yeah, it's a very... <laughs> strange uncomfortable choice in the middle upsetting and then we go into this weird staircase where everybody walks up a staircase and then they have like again cardboard cutouts of buildings that they hold in front of them that sort of transitions me back into the world of being inside a theater that looks feasible and realistic and then the staircase gets longer and longer and longer and is again impossible it was just i my brain exploded this through this whole last sequence i couldn't I just couldn't figure it out. I just, my, I was trying to imagine what this might take in the world of a theater. And then I was like, no, it's too much. And yes. then it was like, oh, I could, this is achievable. Oh no, it's too much again. And it's fun in a certain way because it's so heightened. But as I was watching and thinking about doing this podcast with you, I wanted to ask, what part of this number would you like the least if you were stage managing it? Is it, is it the multiple cars? Is it the live horse? Is it the gunshots? Is it someone jumping from a second story window and getting caught? Or is it finding a place backstage for all of the 40 chorus girls plus presumably at least 20 chorus boys to store these human-sized cardboard cutouts of buildings? Like, to keep 60 of them backstage and have everyone go and pick them up? So... Which of those would be your least favorite part to stage manage? You listed a lot of things, but I'm still going with Live Horse. <laughs> I just... Yes. No, thank you. Because all of those things plus poop, <laughs> not good. I've never done a show with a live animal before. I don't know if you have. Uh, a dog, briefly. The dog was um, fired before opening night. Mm. And it's the best heading to any email I've ever received because there was an email sent around the building that just said, release the dog. <laughs> release the <laughs> it made hounds. Me really happy. <laughs> yeah, it made me really happy. <laughs> I can handle some animals. Like, there are some animals I wouldn't object to that strongly, but you can't house train a horse. The horse is going to shit where the horse shits. So, like, that's, to me, it's, it's about shit control. So we're reaching the end of the number. Yeah, and then... We pan up the staircase, and Peggy and Billy are sitting at the top. And they reach up and pull down a curtain of sorts. But it's not the stage curtain. If I was watching in the theater, it's probably about, oh, maybe three feet across. Yes. <laughs> I was like, what a terrible anticlimax for this giant musical thing. And then you're in the audience, and then they pull down this tiny, sad little curtain right in front, just in front of their faces. And then the curtain says in giant letters right across it, asbestos. <laughs> yes. I had missed the asbestos reference earlier. Which I think makes it funnier. Yes. Like, I mean, if you didn't see 
and wasn't asbestos one of the early things used in fire curtains in theaters? I would imagine so. That sounds totally reasonable. So it's not totally foreign to the theater, but why the curtain would say asbestos? <laughs> Unexplained. Uh, there, uh, well, maybe the curtain, if the curtain was made by asbestos, yeah, like, then they have to have their logo on it. But yeah. it made it seem like asbestos was the star of the show, and I loved it. <laughs> oh, yeah, so great. So great. It's like, 42nd Street, asbestos! <laughs> yeah, good times. And that's times. the end of the show. Because I was watching the timestamp on the movie, and I'm like, we're getting real close to the end of the film. And, oh, okay, it's the end of the movie, and the movie's over. Like, it was just, it was so quick. After the play ends, the movie ends, they, you see some people exiting. That's it. We don't get to see any of our leads again, except for Julian Marsh, the director, who is standing outside the theater. Left alone and sad in the alley. Yeah. I kind of felt for him because it's a really lonely job. And... You know, he's hearing mostly positive stuff about the show and about Peggy and kind of how he'll take credit for finding her. And some guys have all the luck is kind of the tenor of the conversation that people are having out there as they leave the theater. And little does this audience know that he is shortly going to die of nervousness. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's a very strange and abrupt ending. I guess Peggy and Billy share that final moment on stage. Mm -hmm. So because they share that final moment, that gives a sense of resolution to their story. Like we don't need to see anything else, but it does feel very weird and abrupt. Yep. That's the end of the movie. This bananas, bananas movie, which included actual bananas, which was also excellent. Since we finished our last podcast with this, are there any lessons that we've learned from this movie? Important lessons. Um, I learned the important lesson of negotiate more money from asbestos so that you don't have to rely on Abner to fund your theater. Yes. You don't want to be beholden to Abner's whims. Right. I would say the message, which is one that I certainly know from experience, is that it is important to have an understudy. Yes. An understudy who knows ahead of time that they are the understudy is compensated appropriately and has appropriate rehearsal time. Because when you don't, sometimes something bad happens and struggling to resolve things with one day's advance notice like these folks, sure can sometimes turn it okay, but is definitely a source of stress that you don't need in your life. Particularly if like Julian Marsh, you're on death's door due to stress. Your lesson is much better than mine. But... <laughs> <laughs> I mean... The lesson wouldn't hit so hard if I hadn't worked on shows that didn't have any understudies. Yes. And then had to have extensive last minute understudying. Those shows will go unnamed, but it happens. I was in a situation once where the, the playwright had to go on book in hand for somebody. Oof. That was bad news. But that's the excitement of live theater. Yes. I think despite this film's ridiculousness, that's kind of why I like it. That even though it's so over the top, like everything's kind of turned up to 11 in terms of the way the director acts, the ridiculous attitudes of the people in the show and how they're constantly snapping at each other. <laughs> I think it does capture some of that crazy excitement, even though in real life, it's more of a feeling mm -hmm. than it is quite this level of last minute problems and heroics. Yep. 
It's it was such a good choice, and we certainly haven't cut any time a time off of our recording. But uh, no, oh, so good. This has been Chewing Scenery with Sandy Becker and Katarina Sakirko. Tune in next time when we will talk about Alfred Hitchcock's film Stage Fright. Our theme music was Exactly by Ketza. And we are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>